1: Welcome to New Books in German Studies, a channel in the New Books network of podcasts. I'm Michael O'Sullivan of Marist College, one of the co hosts of this podcast. Today, we are very lucky to have Dr. Javier Semper Vendrell as a guest. He is assistant professor of German studies at Grinnell College. And today, we're going to discuss his book, and it's entitled The Seduction of Youth Print Culture and Homosexual Rights in the Weimar Republic. This book appeared with the University of Toronto Press in 2020. And I have to say, it's a book I found very compelling. And I really suggest to anyone who's looking some, for something interesting to read, while we're all stuck home during this pandemic, that you should really pick it up. The book has a, a very moderate price tag for an academic book, um, and I have to say, it's very readable and it has a really accessible style. So uh, with that recommendation, why don't we uh, welcome our guest to the show? Hello, Javier. Welcome to the show.
2: Thank you. I'm very happy to be here with you
1: today. <laughs> Great. Um and uh this is my first uh show since the pandemic has started so uh, i'd say that javier and i both uh put our thoughts out to anyone who is uh either having a hard time uh you know either economically or with their health uh, as this goes on and i'm hoping the podcast will be a nice nice distraction for everyone um so to start, Javier, I was wondering uh, if you could discuss how you uh, just a little bit about your professional biography. So basically, I'm asking, you know, how did you develop your um, specific interests in the field of German studies, which is the topic of a lot of podcasts on this station, uh, on this channel, and uh, queer studies, which is obviously very central to the book.
2: So I, I took a non-traditional path to academia. I started studying history in college in Spain, when I'm originally from but I felt that university was not providing the nourishment I needed at the time when I was 18, 19 years old. I just, had, I just did not enjoy attending large lectures and otherwise being left to my own devices. And I guess this may explain why I would end up at a small liberal arts college like Rimel, which provides a very different kind of education, one that's based on close contact between students and professors and on the development of the students' critical thinking skills. In any case, I was also debating at the time whether I wanted to pursue other career interests, like being a professional pianist, and since this prospect didn't seem realistic at the time, I I was good playing piano, but not that good, I decided that I would quit everything and try something radically new, and I went to Berlin to try my luck, and I must say that this was before Berlin became the cool destination for Europeans, so I was ahead ahead of the time. I dedicated most of my time there to learning the language and working in hospitality, in retail, odd jobs. I finally met my partner, and the opportunity presented itself to come to Iowa, of all places. And long story short, I did my B.A. at the University of Iowa. So I finally finished uh, school. I had spent several years in Germany, and I wanted to know more about its history and culture. Elizabeth Heinemann was my advisor at the University of Iowa, and I cannot stress enough how lucky I am that our paths crossed. She's been a a great mentor, and I admire her greatly. After Iowa, I went to graduate school at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, where I held the George Mosse Distinguished Fellowship in LGBT History. So this got me already into the queer studies part and had the privilege to be part of their amazing program in gender women's history, I must say. I I had great uh, experiences with the professors there, and especially with my advisor, Mary, Mary Louise Roberts, who is not a German historian, but turned out to be a great mentor too.
1: That's great. Uh, I really enjoyed hearing hear, hearing that uh, professional biography, and uh, I love hearing uh, the little little details you you would never find out about someone unless uh, unless you asked it a question like that. The fact that you're considering a career as a professional pianist. Uh, I, um, it's really interesting. And it sounds like you had a great series of people to work with. So, um, I guess to follow up uh, on that question, I'd like to ask you to discuss the circumstances that led you to research and write this particular book. And it seems, um to me, at least from as a, you know an outsider's perspective, it seems that you've researched a broad range range of issues beyond uh, this manuscript, you know, for example, I have used your article about uh, Martha Masa in an upper level undergraduate seminar, uh, and my students really enjoyed it by the way. And I, I would say too, just uh, you know, um, much as the book was very accessible, uh, this article it deals with a lot of complex issues, but it really um, really is something that uh, undergraduate students were, were able to read uh, and get a lot out of and, and be compelled by. So, uh, you know, I I think that you really are, you know, a a wonderful writer. But uh, in any case, that's a long wind up. What is the intellectual origin story of this project?
2: Well, thank you for your kind words, Michael. I I really like to hear that your students enjoy that piece. It's a little bit weird. Uh, I started researching the figure of uh, Friedrich Hatzewald for my undergraduate honors thesis. So Friedrich Hatzewald is the main character in this, in this book. And I'll, I guess we'll talk more about him in a minute. He published multiple queer theme magazines in the 1920s. Of course, like many people, and even more so now, after the success of Babylon Berlin, I was fascinated by the Weimar Republic, especially its cultural and artistic life, and also by the world of possibility it offered to queer people at the time. It's like a golden age followed by brutal repression. I used to live in the gayborhood in Berlin and became interested in queer history through my curiosity for the history of the urban fabric. I remember the day when when looking at a book titled El Dorado, one of the first books of German queer history from the early 1980s, I realized that my supermarket was located in the same space that legendary club once occupied, in the Modstrasse. And I also became more curious about queer history by visiting the Schwulles Museum, the Gay Museum in Berlin, and its great archives. I thought that it was fascinating, not only that queer people had a history, but that there were many historians and archivists, most of them working outside of the university, in their communities, who dedicated their time to tracing the queer past. Once in Iowa, I decided to know more about this period and queer history in general. And somehow I came across the figure of Friedrich Ratzuvite and his magazines, and I don't quite remember how that happened. He seemed to always be a sideshow, a minor figure alongside the towering Magnus Hirschfeld, who was a Jewish socialist, enlightened sexologist, a person who was way ahead of his time. And another figure, the problematic Adolf Brandt, who is often described as a proto-fascist, anti-Semitic, misogynist. I was curious about why so few people had paid Ratzuvite any serious attention. And I found his magazines, which I first read, photocopies at the Schwules Museum, captivating. Who would have known that, at least I didn't know, who would have known that there, were such a, there was such a vibrant queer press in the 1920s? buy published magazines for gay men, but also for lesbians and trans people. So he published the first trans magazine in Germany, I could say, and that, that's been discussed recently. And I'm very happy that scholars are paying increasingly more attention to them and and to this guy. Of course, the more I read these magazines, the more I realized that they were not completely einwandfrei, as one says in German, they are not flawless. They do present ideological inconsistencies, and we find positions that we would find homophobic and transphobic today. In a way, I thought that it was important to show that gay history has some real dark moments too. While Ratzuvite fought for gay liberation, he did so at the expense of other people less privileged than, than him. So he actually spoke only for white, middle-class, cisgender men.
1: Great. Um, I, I really enjoyed hearing that backstory. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's great that we're um, already uh, jumping into, uh, uh, you know, the history of Ratzuvite and hearing that story about how you discovered him uh, is really interesting and how it ties to, to your time living in Berlin. And, uh, I, and I do want to dive into the content of the book at this time. That's a nice, uh, your answer was a nice segue into this. Uh, although I do want to just, um, for the sake of, uh, our listeners, I want to take a, just a step back, uh, to, um, your introduction of the book and, for anyone who reads the book who's non-specialist, this part in the introduction, I think, is really important. And you very clearly describe some of the different phases of the gay rights movement in Germany, um, from the late 19th century to the Weimar era of the 1920s. And this timeline for you was probably very obvious to write, probably might have been the easiest part of the book to write, <laughs> um, uh, since you're a specialist. But I imagine uh, that it might be somewhat new material for at least some members of our audience. So I was wondering if you could just... You know, um, briefly share the this chronology that you've got in your intro, and you know who are a few of the major uh, figures that are associated uh, with each period. In that, um, I guess that'll allow some of our listeners to to situate uh, where Ratzavite fits in.
2: Of course, I'll try to provide a brief outline. I'm not sure it's going to match the introduction completely, but I'll, let, me, <laughs> let me see what I can come up with.
1: You, you have to give them a reason to read the book, right? I mean, yeah.
2: <laughs> The history of homosexual rights uh, goes all the way to the early 19th century and to a person called Heinrich Hösli. He was a Swiss hatter of all things, and he wrote a series of books in the 1830s def- defending the love between men. Hösli, like many after him, drew from the Greek classics and specifically referred to pederasty or Greek love, the sexual relationships between adult men and adolescent boys. Typical of that era. He used that referendum and the prestige of Greek culture in the 19th century to legitimize sem- same sex desire. And he was not a gay man himself, but he, for whatever reason, was interested in, in this. Because this is not very well known today. And I encourage your, your listeners to read Robert Tobin's Peripheral Desires, The German Discovery of Sex, where he discusses him more at length. The 19th century also saw what Michel Foucault describes as a proliferation of discourses surrounding sexuality. Until then, sodomy had been a sin, and it became an illness. Doctors and psychiatrists became interested in explaining same-sex behavior, which they generally explain in pathological terms and link to theories of the the degeneration popular at the time. The homosexual was born at the time he became as species, as Foucault famously put it, as sexuality came to define then the entirety of one's personhood in the second half of the 19th century, homosexuality also became a legal problem in the mid 19th century. For male same-sex acts were criminalized in Prussia, and later after reunification in the entirety of Germany, under a law called Paragraph Paragraph 175, or Uh, I guess paragraph 175 is what you say. A jurist named Karl Heinrich Oldrich spoke up against this injustice at the time. He made the claim in in pamphlets he published anonymously in in 1864 that homosexuality was natural. He understood it as a form of gender inversion, a woman's soul in a man's body. Those were his words. For that reason, he claimed that homosexuality should not be criminalized. It was also around this time that uh, a man called Kalmaria Kelveni coined the the word homosexual because different terms had been used before. Ulrich, for example, used the word warning or Uranian after the goddess Aphrodite, Urania. And again, we see how the Greek classical tradition shaped most of the discourse surrounding homosexual rights during, during the period, during the 19th century. Throughout the rest of the 19th century and early 20th century, there was a tension between homosexuality as a problem that should be dealt with science or with law. The argument that homosexuality was inborn, natural, and universal was very persuasive. At least this is what Magnus Hirschfeld, a doctor and pioneer sexologist I mentioned before, uh, thought, and he became a household name and, and a strong advocate for the criminalization since the late 1890s. Not everybody who felt attracted to people of the same sex, agreed with Hirschfeld. Some, like Adolf Brand, who I also mentioned, also started publishing homoerotic magazines in the late 1890s, and he disagreed that same-sex desire was pathological, or that same-sex desiring men were gender inverts. He and those around him believed the homosexuals, and they never really called themselves homosexuals, but men who desired other men, Or masculine, even heroic, like in the classical tradition. And intergenerational relationships, which Brandt defended, were part of that Greek classical tradition. Brandt is not a likable character, as I said, but neither is Hirschfeld completely. Heike Bauer, a historian based in Britain, has recently shown how Hirschfeld's views were entangled in racism and colonialism. It's a very interesting story. Of course, there are other players in Germany and abroad we have John Avington Simmons and Havelock Ellis in Britain. But the tension between Hirschfeld and Brand is pretty much where my study takes off. They represent the first generation of gay rights activists, albeit with very different arguments and strategies. Friedrich Rathsubide, the main figure in my book, represents what I call a second generation of homosexual rights activists. He was not a doctor, and he was not a snob with highly literary inspirations like, like Brand. But he learned from both Hirschfeld and Brand. he adapted their ideas, and disseminated them among a large, a larger group of people using the tools of mass media. So he used the magazine. And this is sort of where I situate the study in the larger context of rights, of gay rights.
1: Um, excellent. And I, th- I think that, that that was really helpful. And uh for our listeners, if you're interested uh, in the Heike Bauer uh, study of Hirschfeld, um, there is uh, an earlier um, podcast in the in the series on this channel, uh, and, and you can go back and listen to to my my interview with her as well, which is also very interesting. Now, um, like I said, I promise we're going to uh, talk a lot about Ratzvait, but um, you know you uh do this great thing in the introduction with uh, a pretty well-known or a relatively well-known film i guess for for those of us who are specialists in german studies uh the the 1919 film different from others uh, i think it gets featured a lot and you know you'll see the uh you know a frame of the film as a photo and a lot of textbooks and things like that but um i think you expect the thesis and title of your book with a lot of clarity as you analyze this film different from others in your introduction so I was wondering if you could summarize uh, why the film was so controversial uh, in 1919 and uh, why it actually uh, you know touches on themes that, that are so important to the book
2: yeah so many listeners have made all of this film and it's often called the first gay movie and is really talked about and it's been it received a lot of attention recently, also because it's been 100 years since it was first made. The film tells the tragic story of, of a famous violin player who loses his reputation and ultimately dies by suicide because his secret, his homosexuality is exposed by a cruel blackmailer. That's the premise. The film was directed by Richard Oswald, and he collaborated with Magnus Hirschfeld, who even appears in the film as, as, as his own Persona. Blackmail, so this was a very important issue at the time. Hitchfield and others made arguments against the criminalization of male same-sex acts based on this issue alone. The argument was that criminalization led to secrecy, which led to blackmail, which led often to suicide. The criminalization was then needed to stop unnecessary suffering and death. I examined the film from a very different angle, though. There is more than the story of blackmail and suicide in it. The violin player, for example, falls in love with his younger student. And it was this plot line that upset some contemporaries who felt that the film portrayed how homosexual men were seducing youths and turning them into homosexuals. Some even believed that the medium of cinema itself had the power to seduce youths into homosexuality. With films like this one. These arguments were then used to justify the reintroduction of film censorship during the Weimar Republic in 1920. And just like the film, print media was thought to act as a seducer and derail the proper development of youths who were considered particularly vulnerable at the time, especially coming after World War I. Yeah. So I, I used the film to, to show how the issue of youth seduction. Have become ingrained in the popular imagination in Germany at the time. And this is what people like Pratzweit started to fight against in more or less successful or unsuccessful ways, as we'll see.
1: <laughs> and that's uh, you know, the and part of what was great about the the intro is how you had the you used this famous film to sort of tie in to your to, to your titles. So I I I really appreciated that. Um All right. So I want to move into some of your chapters. Um, And I think in your, uh, you know, the first chapter in some ways offers um, kind of some background to your analysis of Ratzavite. And this is part, you know, a part of the book where you get to talk a little bit more about uh, Magnus Hirschfeld, but I think uh, you're, what you're really um, looking at is how sexologists of the Weimar era developed theories on adolescence and, uh, what you show in some ways, and this was really helpful for me, is how, um, you know, Some sometimes those of us who are, are not specialists will look back at Hirschfeld's ideas and view them as, you know, what was kind of standard in the Weimar era. But what you really show is that there are a lot of theories that challenged his ideas at the time. So uh, I guess what did what did Hirschfeld believe and how was the medical and psychological profession challenging his ideas, especially you know, about uh, youth, which are so important to your, your argument. As I
2: said before, uh, Hirschfeld believes that homosexuality was inborn and could be explained through biology. He believed that homosexual men, for example, displayed physical features such as wider hips that explain their gender inversion. They were a third sex or a quote-unquote intermediate state in, in his words. And these are theories that went back to sexology in the, in the 19th century. Hormone research by people like Eugen Steiner in Vienna seemed to offer proof of these theories in the 1920s. So they they claimed to have identified the hormones that produce sexual dimorphism. that they were able to see how the sex glands had an effect on sexuality and so on. This was more or less debunked over the course of the 1920s and 1930s. Of course, should also believed that homosexual men had distinct psychological characteristics. It was not only about the body, even though he thought that it was biology that also shaped more or less the way the mind worked. Your listeners should read uh, Katie Sutton's recent book, Sex Between Body and Mind, which touches upon the what she calls uh, interpenetrations between sexology and psychoanalysis between the 1890s and the 1930s. Because there was a debate between these two fields, as well as sexuality and its anomalies, where to be located in the body or the mind. And childhood sexuality, adolescent sexuality, homosexuality play a huge role in those debates. In any case, in Hirschfeld's opinion, homosexuality was biological and universal. It could be found among all peoples, all species, through the entirety of history. That was his the claim. But not everybody agreed. Some doctors thought that environmental factors were very important too. homosexuality could be acquired, especially as a result of seduction by an older man. Interestingly, some of the theories that Hirschfeld used to support his ideas also worked for this line of argument. Several doctors, Albert Moll among them, and even Freud himself, believed that the sexuality of children and adolescents was not yet fixed. They were still coming out of an original bisexuality. Adolescent boys were particularly vulnerable, they believed, because if seduced at this stage by an older homosexual, their sexuality could be fixed the wrong way. This argument was used to keep homosexuality on the books, as I explain later in the book. The homosexual as a seducer of young boys is indeed, I would say, one of the most well-known homophobic tropes we have. And the idea still has some currency today. But research and into the biology and the psychology of sexual development was used to support the claim that homosexuality was acquired and that seduction was actually real. Yeah. I think that that's...
0: that's shopify.com slash system. All right.
1: And okay. So in um, my next question, you have to uh, excuse me a little bit, but I, when I, um, uh, one of the early times when I uh, studied in Germany, I took this uh, seminar on the German youth movement, which I actually didn't do terribly well in the seminar itself, but I uh, it comes up a couple times in the books. <laughs> so I'm going to ask you a few questions about it. Cause it's always had this enduring, um, I guess, fascination for me in some ways. Um, since, since that early, uh, experience I had with, with the, with the German youth movement. So you, you do mention it in the first chapter, uh, you talk about the Wanderwogel and, um, Hans Bluer's history. Uh, so, and, and this history stirred a little bit of co- controversy. So I was wondering, um, if you could talk about Hans Bluer, his history of the Van der Vogel, and what that had to do with uh, some of the ideas in your book.
2: Yeah. So people may have heard of Hans Bluer in the context of male bonding and and Tevilized male fantasies in a way to, to explain the, the community of men of male bonding as an explanation for fascism. This all happens a little bit later. The Vogel was a youth organization founded in Steglitz, which is a suburb of Berlin, in 1896. In a way, it was an organization against modernity. It advocated the return to nature, folk songs, and all German values. Originally, it was only for boys, although in the 1920s, it became also, it became co-ed, or some branches of it. Hans Bluer was a former member of the Wanderfogel. He was a persuasive writer, sort of a brilliant uh, young mind, who came up with a very original theory about the youth movement in a book he wrote in 1912 about the history of, of it. He was influenced by psychoanalytics thought and argued that the movement was united through erotic bonds, So the people in the movement were united through erotic bonds between the young members and their older leaders. He Never really quite states that these bonds involve actual same sex intercourse, but the mere allusion to that possibility led to a scandal at the time. So, in the 1910s, the organization was accused of being a pederast club. Blue's controversy, so the idea that the Vanda Fogel was like a place where the sexual abuse of minors happened and figures in the book because it lent visibility to the issue of seduction and intergenerational relationships and homosexuality. Since the 19-teens, homosexuality, and that is the love between men, and pederasty, the love between men and adolescent boys, became kind of indistinguishable. And a lot of work had to be done to undo this association in the public imagination in the 1920s. And even until today, like one could argue, when we still have not quite or a lot of people are not able to differentiate between pedophilia and homosexuality and, and different uh expressions of sexuality. Yeah, so that's like the, the, the role he plays as somebody who made this an issue that matter for the larger for the larger community.
1: All right. And Uh, So now I I do want to bring us back to uh, Friedrich Rotzeweit, who obviously is uh, the central figure in the book. And uh, you write a lot about his publications and especially um, his operation of one uh, entitled The Journal uh, of Human Rights. So uh, kind of early in the book, I think you really um, get into how he balanced some of the idealism uh, involved in his publication uh With a certain business acumen that he thought was necessary for uh, the movement uh, for gay rights uh to advance, so can you explain his ideas about how to run his journal and how they differed from previous leaders uh of the movements for um homosexual emancipation in germany
2: mm-hmm. I'll, uh, yeah of course Friedrich Rat i mean i He's like the hero in this book, but people shouldn't really see him as a hero. I mean, he's the main character, but I don't really idealize him at all. And I try to be as critical as I can of his ideas. He didn't really create anything for the first time, but he took advantage of everything that existed at the time. and, And he took every idea that he could and repackaged it. He took advantage of the proliferation of gay organizations that emerged after the war in German cities. And this was part of a larger trend in civic organizations and and also a larger trend in entertainment at the time. And he brought his experience as a businessman to this more popular branch of the gay rights movement and transformed it into a capitalist enterprise. He fought for homosexual rights, but he wanted to make a profit as well, and he was not ashamed to to say it. It's hard to find a clear ideological line in his writings, though. While he agreed that homosexuality wasn't born, he did not support all of Hirschfeld's views. He thought that Hirschfeld's views uh, corroborated the commonly held argument that homosexual men are "quote unquote" sick people, and he agreed with Brand's masculinity position. So. The idea that homosexual men are not gender-inverts or effeminate. But neither Hirschfeld nor Brand liked him, really. They found him vulgar and crass, and they did not think that a mass organization of homosexuals could succeed at all. Ratsu White, by contrast, thought that only by reaching as many people as possible, through the popular press, through his magazines, he'd be able to educate people about homosexuality, and convince legislators and the entire country that homosexuality should not be criminalized. And one may think that he was idealistic here, and he thought that his magazines would have a larger impact than they actually did. I'm interested in popular culture and found many of his writings to be delicious trash, because they are trashy. And I think we're gonna, we may talk about trash. Yeah. <laughs> later because this also plays a huge role in the book. They had a broad appeal and no other publisher of gay magazines. And there were a couple others at the time had as much success as he did and sold these magazines continuously and publicly. I, I argue, I believe that it was through reading Gratsovite's magazines uh, that uh, I realized that the issue of the seduction of youth Became a hot topic in the homosexual rights movement during this period. I can say something a little bit more about this in terms of the of the tensions that we have between Hirschfeld, Grant, and Radziewicz, which I think are interesting to understand how the popular press plays a role in the in the rights movement at the time. So Hirschfeld he run the homosexual rights movement from a position of respectability, so that the medical profession offered him. People generally trusted a medical doctor, and he was a sanitäts hat to boot, so he was an official medical examiner who had acted as an expert witness in court many times. It was also because of that that he was not well-liked by some people because he was the expert witness in the famous Eulenburg affair and an issue involving the, the German court and homosexuality, and that sort of brought him, brought him some discredit but people that did trust his, uh, his opinion as a doctor, and he was able to mobilize progressive politicians and intellectuals for this cause. He was also involved in sex reform in general and connected homosexual rights to larger issues about abortion, the fight against venereal disease, prostitution, women's rights. Adolf Brand, who published magazines, he did not reach a large audience, but the members of his crew. Which was called the community of the special were affluent, educated, and interested in, le- in literature and art. Dradzubaid wanted to reach the rest. He wasn't interested in in the elite. He was interested in in addressing the needs of gay and lesbian workers, and office clerks, who may not have had access to or the skills, education, the or the patience even to read Hirschfeld's medical treatises or. Brands pretentious poems and essays, because they are like, there are a handful. He used plain language, and this is something guys stress in the book, and made the idea of same-sex love possible and accessible for his readers. You did not have to go back to, let's say, Alexander the Great to legitimize same-sex desire. The stories he published, for example, made it possible for the readers to imagine that love was possible right there in Berlin or the rural Wuckemarkt, or any other place in Germany. And I think that that's, like, Pratsuvai's main, main contribution is the fact that it made this discourse, he translated this discourse of gay rights and gay possibility into a language that was very accessible and understandable for his readers.
1: Great. And um, while we're on this, you know, what we're talking about some of the the threads you follow with Ratzvait in the book, um, you know, early on you you look at Ratzvait's encouragement uh, to readers uh, that they they come out to family members. However, I thought this was important for the book as a whole because uh, one theme, other theme that you trace in the book besides some of the ones you just named with Ratzvait, is how he um, engaged this politics of respectability uh, and. So you talk about how he tied the coming out process to two way politics of respectability. So I was wondering if you could uh, talk about this this notion of respectability as a as it plays out in the book, and it, you know, and how it elaborated, I guess, in, in in the specific case of you know how he encouraged uh, people to come out.
2: Mm-hmm. I think that this is the aspect of Shatouide's politics that resonates most with us today, and this is something that. Laurie Marcoff has also addressed the fact that the politics of respectability have been very important in gay rights in the last sort of 20-some years here in the United States. We see that with the human rights campaign and gay marriage and politics of assimilation in a way. And I think that's why I was trying to do something along those lines, but just a hundred years earlier. He wanted to convince his readers and the general public. That homosexuals were not, quote-unquote, different from the others, like the title of the film we just discussed, but actually the same as everyone else. He made the point that homosexual men and women came from all walks of life. They had different class ba- backgrounds, mm-hmm. religious affiliations, and political loyalties, And that mattered because you could not unify them so easily white stressed, however, that homosexual men had to be respectable. And he understood this as being a productive member of society who did not cause public nuisance or behave in a way that could be perceived by the heterosexual majority as being repulsive. So, for example, being too effeminate or gender nonconforming or having sex with male prostitutes or adolescent boys or partying too much. So, while he promoted party, he parties and, and events, he said that, well, we shouldn't do this too much because it takes away some of our respectability. Of course, this was, as I said before, an exclusionary discourse because only men like him, so cisgender, so gender conforming, white, middle class men, could be respectable according to these views. He thought that, Hatsubai thought that, that if gay men were respectable, and we also need to understand respectable as, palatable enough, same-sex acts would be decriminalized. Gay men should show that they were just as tame as the heterosexual majority and that sex was not central to their existence. His commercial interests have often conflicted with this view though. Organizing, as I said, organizing lavish parties and publishing pictures of young boys and on the covers of, of his magazines did not quite support the respectable message he he spread. And this is actually the contradiction I tried to, to understand throughout the book. How you could just, on the one hand, promote respectability, but also couldn't let go of the allure of of the theoretical lure of youth because it was important for your business.
1: Yeah. And and I think that's the the perfect segue uh, to my next question here. And and it also links back to your Uh, you know, your comment earlier in the interview about, uh, how some people viewed Rotzevite as trashy. (laughs) Um, but this, uh, you know, the book caused me to think a lot about, uh, earlier interviews I've done for the network. And in this case, you know, I I talked to Kara Ritzheimer about her book, um, about the, the trash and the, the so-called trash and filth laws of the Weimar Republic. And, and and yeah, the, the trash and filth law of 1926 play, plays a role in the book, and uh, I spend time researching uh, German Catholics, so that obviously comes up in my own work uh, quite a bit as well. Um, so you, uh, you examine a wide range of morality campaigners who helped bring this so-called trash and smut or trash and filth law into existence, and um, and I was certainly very intrigued by one claim that you make when you talk about it, where you argue in some ways, these morality campaigners, these morality activists were in some ways proof of a democratic process in the Weimar Republic, which is not always how everybody always thinks about it. Um, But then you also analyze how the law really dealt a blow to Ratzavite and inhibited his activities or posed an important obstacle. So, I guess what I'm really doing here is asking you two questions in one. Um, So who were the figures who wanted such a law, a a so-called trash and filth law, that that in some ways would add a dose of censorship to this um, republic that was supposed to be about free speech? And how did they justify their position? But also, how did the law create a crisis for the journal? Uh, the Journal of Human Rights and for Ratzabite?
0: So,
2: as, as you just said, some of the morality campaigners were connected to Protestant church or Catholic church. And we can think of organiza- organizations such as the Bobulmeus Verein, which has been responsible for distributing and vetting media in accordance to Catholic principles since the 19th century, I think, since 18, since the 1840s or so. The leaders of this organization and of of, of other organizations were also invested in promoting quote-unquote appropriate reading habits among youth. There were other youth organizations whose main objective was the promotion of good books, as they call them, and the debate about trash and filth actually goes back to the late 19th century, as, as Kara Ritzheimer shows in her excellent book. And it centered on which kinds of readings were appropriate for youths, especially working-class youths, who were thought as both being endangered and a danger in the context of rapid urbanization and industrialization. The idea was that appropriate readings could shape the good morals of young people, but bad readings could also have the opposite effect. So there was not need to intervene or even to censor. A certain degree. This debate came back in full force in the Weimar mm-hmm. Republic because these groupings and conservative-leaning politicians perceived that the abolition of censorship had been followed by a flood of trashy and smutty publications, and they really described this in, in it was a flood of biblical proportions. There was so much trash and so much filth. In my book, I suggest that the organizations that promoted a new law to curb the spread of trashy and smutty publications participated in the democratic process because they lobbied lawmakers in the spirit of civic organizations. So they they did follow the, the rules and the law to to a large extent. Lawmakers, in turn, did tried their best to uphold the principles of the Constitution. So we had different committees vetting the publications that, that these organizations had presented as trashy or, or smutty to them. And they really looked to see whether there was merit in the accusations. So we could say that there was a transparent, bureaucratic process that was followed, even if the decisions followed some ideological lines. For the most part, the books that were indexed were trash, they were of poor literary quality, and that's what it meant by that, or smut because they were considered obscene. Ratzelweit's publications fall somehow in both camps. The people in these vetting offices and, and the people in organizations who saw these magazines in in the kiosk and then wrote the vetting offices to tell them that this was unacceptable, they agreed that these publications were terrible. They were of terrible quality. And that the topic of homosexuality itself was obscene because it disgusted most people. As Jens Dobla and other scholars have argued the law did not target publications with homosexual content. So there was nothing written in the law that said that gay magazines were necessarily smutty or trashy. And we see that peaceful writings were not indexed. So, and medical writings were not indexed. This was really about popular culture as well. But the law did disproportionately impact the homoradic popular press, especially at uh, publications because they depended on, on sales. And I argue that by putting these publications under the counter, so you they could not prohibit their sale, but they could prohibit that they are sold publicly. And thereby, so by reducing their visibility, Pratsuvai's business suffered, and his message could not be spread as effectively. And this also plays with the politics of respectability, because it's like, I'm trying to, to spread the Message of homosexual respectability here and then the vetting offices, the government is saying that this is not respectable enough. So he also felt somehow personally offended here. He recognized that the law hurt him financially. The law nonetheless was constitutional because it sought to protect youths from harmful influences. And this was a provision in the Constitution. There was no censorship, but we have to protect youths. We'll do whatever. So we have the film law and then... It's Russian smart law, for that purpose, some people in the wedding offices thought that Radzivill's publications could actually familiarize youths with homosexuality, and seduce them into it, so to speak. So young boys had to be protected from that. And here we see the connection between different from the others and the publications. The fact that media itself could act as a homosexual seducer, and therefore there was this need to control, to control it, and to curb its appeal. I hope that that answered your question more on
1: this. It, it it did absolutely and I'm I'm sorry through through kind of two things at you at once like that too and uh but uh, I'll, I'll 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 pose my, my my next question at this point and that this is uh another uh bring me back to my uh my German youth movement seminar <laughs> and I wrote this uh I, I wrote the final paper of that seminar on Gustav Heinicke who comes up uh, in the middle of your book, and uh, he's always been one of those figures because I, I did this big project on him. Who always sits in the back of my head a little bit, with, you know, when I see his name come up. But you look at the trial of uh, youth pedagogue uh, Gustav Einnikin in 1921 for abuse of uh, pupils, and you, you use that trial as a way to explore debates within the homosexual emancipation movement during the Weimar Republic. So. Uh, chronologically, of course, this is comes before the the trash and smut law, but uh, you use the trial um really effectively. And I, I was wondering if you could tell us about the trial and I, I guess what it meant um, you know if if the trash and smut law in many ways was looking at this issue of respectability and youth seduction, I think um, the, the, the tie-in with the Weineken Trouble uh, trial is is to this sort of seduction of youth theme that runs through the book, but especially uh, you really get into perceptions about inter- intergenerational gay relationships. Uh, so uh, I was wondering if you'd just tell us more about the trial and, and how it fits in with, with your uh, uh, the theme of your book.
2: Yeah. I actually wish I had spent a little bit more time on Weineken in the book, because he's it's, he's there, but I think he might have deserved a, a little bit more attention than I paid to him because he's indeed a fascinating figure. He played a huge role as, the, as one of the intellectual leaders of the youth movement at the turn of the 20th century and as a, as a reform pedagogue at the time. He founded with uh, Paul Geheb, the free school Dickensdorf, And this was a boarding school where they experimented with a new kind of pedagogy that reversed the authoritarianism typical of Prussian schools. So in in their school, teachers and pupils had a more equal relationship, a closer connection. Hierarchies were not that strict and punishment. They were supposed to be comrades. Some thought that this particular teacher, so Gustav Wienekin, was perhaps too close to his pupils. And in 1919, he was charged with sexually abusing two of his teenage students. He denied the accusations and argued that his relationship with the students was not sexual, but erotic. And this was a nuance that didn't convince the court at the time. Perhaps a few years earlier, and this is something I I suggest here, the courts would have been happy to dismiss the claims, but by 1919... There had been more research and in the uh, court depositions of, of young people and the credibility, and somehow this worked against him. He was sentenced to prison, but was pardoned a few years later nonetheless. The case, and this is why it's important for me, resonated in the homosexual press because it brought the issue of homosexuality and seduction to the mainstream, so everybody was talking about it, sexual abuse, and his relationship to homosexuality, and because Winneken refused to say publicly that he was a homosexual, something that some leaders in the movement had wished. So they expected that he would have said in court, I do this because I'm a homosexual and I'm proud of it, without thinking that the intergenerational issue was actually important here. The debate surrounding Winneken led to a shift in the homosexual movement. So there were those who said like, we should embrace Vineken, he should have been one of us. And there were those who said like, well, wait a minute, maybe Winnikin is not the best spokesperson for the movement and we should distance ourselves from him. So through these debates, pederasty, Vineken's crime, and homosexuality were increasingly described as two distinct sexual orientations that had nothing to do with each other. Friderasty was connected to abuse of children and youth, was shameful and criminal. And by by contrast, homosexuality or the same sex acts between fully consenting adults were respectable and should not be criminal. So at this moment, we see how intergenerational sex becomes something that homosexual men are trying to distance themselves from. And I think that that's crucial. For understanding sort of Ratzwade and 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 his politics, interestingly, I would say Vinnikens' collaborator I mentioned before, Paul Geheb, later founded the Odenwald Schule, and this is a, was a very famous boarding school that uh, was surrounded by scandal in the last twenty years or so for the sexual abuse of minors in Germany and. I think it will be very interesting to connect these two stories. I don't do this here, but somebody, if not me, should take this up and try to connect Vineken and his abuse of of students with what happened at the other Vaschule throughout the twentieth century allegedly
1: Well it sounds like a really that that would be a really interesting project yeah so okay uh to Toward the end of the book, you know, you, you describe, and you've actually, I think, also described uh, him in this interview, you've described Rotzevite as a figure of contradictions. So, toward the end of the book, I think you demonstrate these contradictions very clearly when you cover his reaction to the debate about abolishing paragraph 175 in 1929. And uh, here, once again, the links of your work to the work of Laurie Marhoffer, who's, who's also been interviewed on this channel, uh, that they become clear again. So I was wondering if you could summarize um, the politics of this moment in 1929, where decriminalization seemed a possibility. And share some of your criticisms, once again, of how uh, Ratzevite uh, behaved.
2: So, yeah, Laurie Marhoeffer has been a great inspiration, a mentor of mine, and she does a great job explaining the, the politics and the compromise surrounding the, the decriminalization in 1929. I look at it from slightly different angle, and I wouldn't say that what I claim to be the main issue or intergenerational sex was the most important issue, but it certainly played a huge role in the debates about decriminalization. This is something that we have always mentioned, but never looked into as something significant, even though it continues to play a huge role, not only in 1929, but in later decriminalization in later attempts throughout the 20th century. There was a window of possibility for the abolition of the sodomy law of paragraphs 175 around 1929. There had been attempts to revise Germany's criminal code since the early 1900s, and there was an effort to modernize it, to bring it to the 20th century, so to speak. Abolishing the paragraph 17, uh, 175 was part of this agenda all along. The criminalization of male same-sex acts did not help prevent the alleged crime, which was in turn difficult to prove in court, especially because the law stated that, quote-unquote, intercourse-like acts must be committed for it to be admissible in court, and they had to be proven. So legislature saw that the crime was very difficult to prove in court, and it did not prevent people from committing it anyway. Kirchfeld played a huge role in advocating the criminalization. He, as I said, he mobilized experts and intellectuals and even celebrities to support abolition, and he lobbied the parliament effortlessly. By the end of the 1920s, everything seemed to have aligned. There was a more liberal government, and there was Wilhelm Kahl, a liberal and democratic lawmaker who was leading the Legal reform Committee, and public opinion was more favorable too, in general. Still, lawmakers, and this is my intervention, I would say, were divided on the issue of inborn versus acquired homosexuality, we discussed before. Many of them, including Cal, believed that youths could indeed be seduced into homosexuality because they were constitutionally not, the sexuality was not fixed at the time. They could go either way, and this influence could really derail their development. This was reason enough to keep some form of the law on the books, especially one that would ensure the protection of youth. So, for example, having a higher age of content of consent for same-sex acts. In the end, as we know, political and economic crisis prevented that reform actually happened. And the Nazis did revise the law in 1935 and increased punishments. And there is plenty of scholarship on that. In any case, because of the failure to decriminalize homosexuality in 1929, the movement floundered in the early 1930s. Some blame Hirschfeld for it. Perhaps science was not the best strategy, they claim. And Laurie Markhofer, in her book, does a great job explaining why Hirschfeld was uh, uh, dismissed or removed from the Scientific Humanitarian Committee. I don't really get into that so much. I get more into Ratsu by taking the opportunity, seizing this opportunity to profile himself again, because he was a man who was really interested in being the leader of the homosexual rights movement, even though that even though Hirschfeld had the most visibility. He thought that his strategy of the press and respectability and so on was much better. And uh, he insisted that homosexual men did not harm, but in fact sought to protect young men from harm. And to prove that point, he campaigned against male prostitution. He even wrote a book about that, which is like everything he did ambivalent on the issue and condemned intergenerational relationships strongly. I think in the end lawmakers did not actually listen to Katsubai. They couldn't find a mention like, oh, Katsubai has convinced us that this is not the case. I think he was essentially ignored, mostly because of his class background, his fact that this was popular culture and not something as respected as medicine or law. And his respectability argument in the way in the end was hypocritical all along because while he said that he wanted to protect youth, he traded in his erotic potential. So young, attractive men were all over the place in his magazines, in the covers, in the stories. So that didn't really help. I tried to to make that case here. Despite Ratsuvai's efforts to to claim respectability, to claim that homosexual men were protecting youth, People continue to believe that homosexual men were sexual predators and and seducers of youth. And I think that's, in a nutshell, the argument of of this attraction of youth. The fact that this idea was prevalent in the 1920s and early 30s, that and his branch of the homosexual rights movement tried to fight against it, tried to turn it around, but their strategy didn't quite work to to do that. And in fact, sort of reinforced the stereotype.
1: Great. Well, I think at this point, I've uh, really taken up uh, quite a bit of your, of your time. You've been, uh, you know, offered wonderful answers and uh, been very patient with my questions, Javier. So I'd like to end uh, the interview with the book or with a question, excuse me, that we always ask at the end of uh, New Books uh, Network uh, interviews. And that is, now that you've completed uh, this great book, what are you working on now?
2: So unfortunately, I haven't been working on a lot of things because of this pandemic. And I was supposed to be traveling and conducting research abroad. And this is my my junior research leave. And it's very unfortunate that I get to spend it at home. But I've been working on a couple of things since the book and also while the book was in production. And we all know that this takes a long time, actually, since I started working in, in the German Studies Department at Grinnell College, I have been, in a way, retooling into a historian slash Germanist, and I've been thinking and writing a little bit more about literature and film, not as a historian, but as a maybe as a cultural historian. And the book is also like more like cultural history and cultural studies, in a way, this a kind of hybrid. I've written an article on Klaus Mann's debut novel, so The Fromet and this is, people say, the first mainstream gay novel published in 1926. And I've been writing a little bit more on Weimar era film. So here I do a little bit of film analysis, but I've been working on films like M or Metin in mm-hmm. Uniform from a queer theory perspective. And these are like sort of smaller projects that you can tackle while we are teaching, while we are working. My next larger project is uh, about male nude photography from the 1890s until today. So, another topic that may not be the most. Uh, I'm Van Frey, as I said before. I became uh, interested in visual culture when I was writing the book, and I just had enough time to write a few pages on the images on the cover of Ratuet magazines and Adolf Brandt and so on but I felt that I was maybe to a certain degree a dilettante at this point and that I wanted to know more about that and especially about how images and visual culture can can help us understand how male same-sex desire is entangling histories of racism and racialization. So now I'm researching well-known photographers such as Wilhelm von Gluven who took pictures of young Italian uh, men the 1890s and early 1900s but also photographs taken by Adolf Brand, who was himself an amateur photographer and also took a lot of pictures of nude men and in the book I show how they are like representing this Aryan ideal and I hope to connect their work to a longer history of glorifying whiteness in male erotic photography throughout the 20th century so my next project is not completely unrelated, but it's going to be the focus is going to be visual culture.
1: Well, it so- it sounds like uh, an- another compelling project, and uh, assuming we can get out of this pandemic and uh, we can continue to do things okay. as we've always done them, and you know, I think we well, we'd, we'd like to have you on the New Books Network at some point in the future when that when that uh, when that project comes to completion. I would
2: love to. Thank you. <laughs>
1: So, uh, yeah, I'd like to take this opportunity to thank you for giving us your time today and being on the show, Javier.
2: Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it.
1: Great. Um, And for our audience, you've been listening to an episode in New Books in German Studies, a channel on the New Books Network of Podcasts. My name is Michael O'Sullivan, and our guest today was Dr. Javier Samper vendrell Uh, We discussed his recent book, The Seduction of Youth, Print Culture and Homosexual Rights in the Weimar Republic, published with the University of Toronto Press in 2020. I hope that all of our listeners are as well as they can be, as well as as can be expected. Uh, Stay healthy, everyone, and thank you for tuning in, and we hope you'll continue to listen.